The following program is a podcast1.com production. Let's play. sure exactly when it happened. I have a fair idea around when it happened. I mean, a pretty precise idea around when it happened because it was a major change. Major change for me in my life. And there was really no going back from that point on. But what I'm talking about is when... I lost my willingness to do something for nothing. Now, let me clarify that. That's not the case with everything. Not by far not the case with everything. Not the case with charitable efforts, for sure. Not the case with brand new ideas or, or creativity. And things like um, the Rock and Roll Christmas Tale, which I conjured the basic idea in around 2008 here we are rolling into 2016 and i haven't seen penny one off of the prop property it has been produced twice but i won't take any pay other than the very basic minimal uh union required pay for an actor uh and all of my royalties that I'm due, even though the show isn't profitable yet, as the creator of the show I'm, and the songwriter, I'm due certain royalties. I just give those right back, reinvesting, because the show, I can't see myself taking a profit from something like this when the show isn't profitable yet, when investors are not seeing their money, when there's better use than lining my pockets. That just seems disingenuous to say the least um so i so again so yeah i mean i will do plenty of things for nothing but things that i used to do for nothing that i did for nothing for a very long time i have an unwillingness to do to still do for nothing and that came about not when I started to make money from doing them. It's more than that. It's, it's, it's way more than that. It's when my creative efforts were being acknowledged, received, lauded, and applauded by an audience. And I'm not talking about critical acclaim. Because I, for one, have been a person that has, has dealt with a lack of critical acclaim. My choices, like Twisted Sister, like Strangeland, like The House of Hair, 
uh, they tend to not be media or critical darlings. They tend to not get the reception that, say, a U2 or a Sting or a Springsteen or one of those other, you know, types. Uh, I actually have nothing against those other types. Um, I have a lot of respect for some of them, too, especially Springsteen. Uh, But I've never gotten that kind of acclaim. That's not what I'm talking about. Up until the time you cross over and you get an audience for your work, you do it for yourself. You do it for an audience of one, and you don't care. You don't care that nobody's listening. This is something you have to do. This is something you have to say. Whether it's writing songs or painting or writing books or any kind of creativity, any kind of output, there is an extreme willingness, on my part at least, to not only do it for nothing because you have to, it's just something you're driven to do, but to do it for an audience of one, to not care if people are paying attention, to not care if you're being acknowledged by anybody. It's something you've got to do, something you've got to say. And I did that for many, many, many years. The movie We Are Twisted Fucking Sister, the documentary that's coming out, is a testament to that, a testament to that lack of caring what other people think. And it's not a matter of caring what other people think. Uh, it's a it's a matter of well when you're doing it for yourself it's a matter of, of of just having to do it but what you're looking for is other like-minded individuals you're looking for an audience you're looking for people to hear what you're saying even though you're screaming it alone in the darkness you have the hope that one day there will be acknowledgement. You have the hope that one day there people will hear your screams. And the change happened for me when they started to hear my screams. The change happened to, for me when after years of going unheralded, suddenly my music, my art, my passion was no longer for an audience of one. It was for millions it was international. It was on the radio. It was on television. It was, you know, it was licensed. It was on commercials. It was talked about. It was, it was reviled and it was heralded. You know, it was, it, it, you know, that moment was when the change happened. I didn't realize it at the time. I didn't realize that I no longer could do it for a party of one, an audience of one. I didn't. But after the demise of Twisted Sister, uh, and I went, I won't say into seclusion, but I was gone for a while developing a project called Desperado, which 
wound up being dropped by Electro Records after three years of effort and over 100 songs written. Then came Widowmaker with another you know, 50 songs written for two albums and those deals falling apart. It was at that point when I had no more record deal, the music scene had changed. Grunge had come in. They found a cure for what I did. As I like to say, they found a cure for hair metal. It was called grunge. Then I realized I no longer was willing to create for just myself. I no longer needed to. I no longer wanted to. I got no solace. I got nothing out of the idea of sitting, writing songs, great songs, at least to myself, great songs. They may have been not so great in all reality, but songs that I loved, songs that I thought were worthy of recognition, songs that I thought were deserving of acknowledgement, knowing that they would not be on a grand scale. Sure, there was, and we've discussed it, you've heard me discuss it, there was little indie deals you could put together and you could, you know, sell thousands or several thousand. That wasn't enough. I had been spoiled. I have been spoiled. I've seen the effect. I've had my music reach the masses, be received by the tens of millions. I've stood on a stage and watched an audience react at the speed of sound. It is something to behold. When you say, when I say, I want to rock, you can actually see the smiles go from the front row, the first to hear it, at the speed of sound. It's very quick, but it's a ripple through the crowd, and the, the faces light up from front to back, and the hands go like the wave, but a very fast wave because the speed of sound is very fast. Not as fast as the speed of light, but it's fast. The hands go up, and once you've had that, you've experienced that, it's, for me, very hard to go back. Impossible to go back. Now, with creative projects that I haven't, like writing screenplays, and I write screenplays. I've written screenplays. I've got a stack of them. Only one's been produced, um, A Strange Land. Another was sold, uh, a, a, a film script was sold a couple of times called Junk Squad, but never produced. Um, a television show called Rock the House. I sold that, a sitcom, many years ago. Um, and then a, another one called The Snyders of Great Neck, which was an Everybody Loves Raymond-esque show with me in a, in a sitcom situation and a, fake, and a fake family, but me as the star. Sold that, but it didn't get produced. So I've sold some things. I've had one film produced, but not to the point where I have now been spoiled, if you will, so to speak, spoiled. And... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm looking at, uh, oh, I see it right there, beautiful. I'm looking at the clock, making sure I've got the same time though, right? Uh, but with music, I have been spoiled. And 
I am hard pressed to write for myself. And quite honestly, that was one of the big revelations as well for me was, you know, my music came from such a place of anger and frustration and hostility. I was so motivated by that. When I succeeded, it took the wind out of my sails. I've spoken about this in my book. Shut up and give me the mic. I'm going to keep saying it till you all buy it. Um, but I've spoken about this. Where I remember clearly the summer of 85. So Twisted broke in 84. I'm on the road to March of 85. I come off the road to move in to in March of 85. Move into a big house in an upscale neighborhood. Um, start buying cars and boats and living a lifestyle. Not sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Money. <laughs> Money and living large. Living like a rich person. And I remember it was the summer of 85. I was sitting by my pool. No, it wasn't above ground either. Uh, and it was just recently put in the in-ground pool, recently, recently built into the new property, the new house. And I'm sitting by the pool on a beautiful day outside my multi-million dollar house with all the cars and the boats in the driveway. And I'm trying to write lyrics for a song about teen angst. And I got nothing. I've got nothing. Because I'm not pissed. What did I be pissed off about? I mean, I see, you know, Metallica, St. Anger, and uh, Hetfield seems to be able to muster a, a, a solid rage. I'm not really sure about what. But, but God bless him. But for me, that was not only a, a downfall, for me, musically, but it was what I was working for. To me, one of the beauties of rock and roll, of heavy metal, is the transformative aspect of it. That it was a, a tremendous release. It is a tremendous release for fans, for people in the audience, but for me as a performer to vent those emotions in my songs, in my lyrics, in my performance, to tell the world how I felt, how frustrated and angry I was at life. And I got to do that, and I felt better. It was cathartic. I felt better for it. Now what? Now what? And guess what? I didn't. And this is I've said to people, I had no plans on doing this forever. Look at the, the test, the, uh, me testifying before Congress. I said I planned to be well-retired by 35. I was 30 at the time I was making that speech. I planned on a couple more albums. I didn't know that the bottom was going to fall out of my career, but I did not plan on doing this forever. I planned on doing other things, and that's what I'm doing now. People just don't take me seriously when I talk. All right, this story is sad but true. I've told you about my son Cody and his girlfriend and how they leased a car together and just feel insanely ripped off. Well, now we're sitting at dinner. This is just last night. I kid you not. I'm not. You can't make this shit up. And we're talking about this nightmare of a deal they made with this car. And how from beginning to end, it has felt like they were ripped off. That they were taken. And how not a day goes by that they don't feel abused and frustrated 
by the lousy deal they got on this new car. And now they want to get rid of the car, and they don't know how to do it without losing a shitload of money. They just went down the wrong path. And I told them, I said, you know, guys, I've been using your example as fodder for fodder, not mutter, fodder, as fodder for a commercial I do. And my son goes, true car? And he says it knowingly. I said, yeah, true car. You know about true car? He goes, and and his, his girlfriend's face just drops. This is a discussion they've had. He goes, yes, if only I'd known about true car. This, I swear to you, this is True. These are their words. This happened last night at dinner. I'm smiling ear to ear because, like I said, you can't make this shit up. He says, please, I know about True Car. I should have used True Car. I didn't know about it at the time. And it just makes me sick to know that I had a choice. There was another way to do this. And I wouldn't have to feel like such a piece of dog shit. And I said to him, you know, and that's, I said, I make that point. And I told him what I say on the commercial and how you feel like you've been taken when you're buying a car and you feel so lost and out of your, out of place in the, in the showroom dealing with the salesman. And he said, it couldn't be truer. So you don't have to feel like Cody. You can go online to find the fair price on a new car via True Car. Now with True Car, you can see what others in your area have paid for the same car, something Cody finds out about every day. All right? This will help you determine a fair price. Then you get, then you get a guaranteed savings certificate from a True Car certified dealer. Your savings will be honored by a True Car certified dealer without the need to negotiate. You're not going to go back in the showroom and start from square one. You did your negotiating on your computer, and it's not even negotiating. It's coming to a fair price, finding out what the fair price is, locking it in, getting your certificate, savings certificate, guaranteed savings certificate. TrueCar users save an average of $3,221 off of MSRP. I can assure you, my son did not. And it's no hassles, no headaches. It's how car buying was always meant to be. Just ask Cody. Over 2 million cars have been sold by the True Car Certified Dealer Network. And there are over 10,000 dealers in the True Car Certified Dealer Network. So there's got to be one near you. You will work directly with a True Car Certified Dealer contact. Done and done. Visit TrueCar.com or download the True Car app and start saving today. True Car, never overpay. Word. And that's truth. Hey, peeps, this is D. Just want to take a minute to thank all my great sponsors and all of you great listeners for supporting my sponsors and this podcast. All of your contributions help make this show possible. And I wanted to remind you that you can support my sponsors by going to my show page at podcastone.com, clicking on the support this podcast banner, and there you'll see all my wonderful sponsors that help keep the lights on. God, I love those people. In addition to my sponsors, you can also support this podcast by using my Amazon banner. Amazon offers this show a small commission on any product you purchase. It doesn't cost you anything. You can even use my Amazon banner if you're located in Canada or the UK. Also, to make it easier for all future purchases, feel free to bookmark my Amazon URL. Thanks again for all your support, and now back to my show. 
Hey, peeps, this is D. Just wanted to take a minute to thank all my great sponsors and all of you great listeners for supporting my sponsors and this podcast. All of your contributions help make this show possible. And I wanted to remind you that you can support my sponsors by going to my show page at podcastone.com, clicking on the Support This Podcast banner, and there you'll see all my wonderful sponsors that help keep the lights on. God, I love those people. In addition to my sponsors, you can also support this podcast by using my Amazon banner. Amazon offers this show a small commission on any product you purchase. It doesn't cost you anything. You can even use my Amazon banner if you're located in Canada or the UK. Also, to make it easier for all future purchases, feel free to bookmark my Amazon URL. Thanks again for all your support, and now back to my show. So, to wrap that up, because where this is leading to, is not only am I not motivated to, I wrote songs forever, hundreds of songs. Uh, It was my craft. And now I don't write anymore. Unless I have to. I wrote two new songs for my musical. Needed a couple new songs. I can write. If I have a purpose, I will write. But if it's not, they weren't writing out of like, emotion out of a need to express myself these were very specifically in a in a musical i needed some songs that were explaining a certain scene in the show a certain you've seen musicals most of you have so and the songs were like the one song is called it's not the club that sucks um another song is called it's more it takes more than a cup uh which is about this about the lead singer in, in my fictitious band's fixation on a styrofoam cup that Ozzy Osbourne gave him to throw in the garbage. He thinks, and he thinks he was bequeathed a chalice by the Lord of Darkness, the Prince of Darkness, uh, and that it, it means that, and it's because he, and it'll make him a rock god, because Ozzy said, throw this out for me. Uh, it's a comedy, obviously. So the songs, I can write songs with a purpose. I can say, okay, this is what I need to write a song for. I can write. But the genuine Heartfelt emotion that created, we're not going to take it, I want to rock, it can't stop rock and roll. Songs like that, The Price, uh, Burn in Hell, they, they came from within. Statements I needed to make, emotions I needed to express, feelings I need to, need to express. But I can't do that. Just, I don't, not I can't, I don't feel the need and I don't want to. Which brings me to this podcast. I love the microphone, okay? I love the microphone. And I've been doing radio now for well over 20 years. And when I started doing radio, I did it for nothing. For nothing. I mean, virtually nothing. I did a, a started, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> doing a metal, well, if you go back to when I <clears throat> used to do the Howard Stern show, you know, two, three times a week, get up at 3 in the morning, can, uh, you know, drive over to Howard's house, drive with him at 5 in the morning because we lived near each other, not that. I had to get up, get ready, wake up, drive over to his house, you know, take limo with him into the city at like 5 in the morning, 5, 5.30, get there, do the show from 6 to 11, hang out, go back. I, I did that for like probably 100 times I was on his show. And I loved it. I never got a penny for it. I never even thought of asking for a penny for it. 
And then when I started doing radio, when I did my own metal show called The Metal Nation on Long Island, Sunday nights from uh, 10 to midnight or midnight to 2, whatever it was, I think I was getting three twenty-five an hour. So I got $6.50 a week for a two-hour show. And I did everything on the show. I engineered the show. I hosted the show. I would deal with the indies and the record promoters on Tuesdays. I would program the show. I would record the commercials for the show. I did everything for $6.50 a week. Didn't pay for my gas, but I was passionate about it. I, I wanted to do it. I had to do it. I needed to do it. Well, now after 20 years of doing radio, Oh, and by the way, I was broadcasting to fish from 10 to midnight or midnight to 2 a.m., whatever the time was on that show, Metal Nation. Uh, the, the, the joke on Long Island was we're broadcasting to fish because the rate, it was on the north shore of the east end of Long Island, and the circular radius, half of its broadcast region was water, literally water. So other stations would joke, because this was the small fry station on Long Island, that we were broadcasting the fish. And we were. But I didn't care. Because I wanted to do it. I loved the mic I needed to do. I wanted the opportunity to express myself through this medium. And over the last 20 years, I've, the House of Hair is now in its 19th year, over 220 stations. I just recorded my 950th show. Um... I've done morning radio, with a successful morning radio show for three years in Hartford, Connecticut, and Richmond, Virginia. Top rated, big audience. Um, I did uh, nights in Philadelphia successfully there for a year. So I did three years of satellite with Sirius XM and Fangoria Radio. So I have done radio, but now, like the music, I've seen the phones light up. I've seen the ratings. I've done, I started doing radio for nobody, t- recording, taping. You would do what they call, they call them um, uh, sound checks, air checks, air checks. Because you got to go, people say to me, what's the, what's the what, you know, what do you need to be a radio personality? A, number one, you got to love the sound of your own voice. You got to be in love with the sound of your own voice. Because not only do you sit in a room talking to yourself, but you need to take these air checks and listen to yourself talking to yourself. Over and over. Hearing what you did good, hearing what sounds bad, tweaking, changing. This is how you learn your craft. This is how you improve. So you got to, the most important thing to being a radio air personality is not your tonality, it's loving hearing your own voice. And then it goes from there. But I did it for nothing, for years. Then I, you know, there's a, a small percentage of radio personalities that are highly paid, and I fall into that category. I worked my way there. Uh, you know, uh, am I blessed that I found another career that, that, that I've made a lot of money doing, uh, a voiceover and radio? Yes, but I also worked at it. It's a craft like anything. I, do I have a, a natural talent? Probably, but it's, it's not enough to make you successful. You've got to learn the craft. 
and nobody pays you to learn the craft. When I started working radio, um, I went and I got an agent, and the first thing he said to me, he says, listen, D, no one is going to give you a six-figure salary to walking off of a stage of an, of an arena onto the radio. If you want to do this, you're going to have to get in the trenches and work your way from the bottom up. There's a very famous um, situation where somebody worked, uh, was just was just sort of, I don't know what the word is, um, excuse me for burping two seconds ago, um, was just sort of given an opportunity to go from the Coliseum stage, the arena stage, right onto a huge salary, right onto the air, and that was David Lee Roth replacing Howard Stern. Anybody who remembers this fiasco knows that this is proof positive that you cannot just do that. And as a matter of fact, I believe, honestly believe, that he got the gig because of me. How you may ask. Well, I was doing radio in other markets, doing mornings. The same, not the same kind of show, but the morning talk radio show as Howard. And people were saying I was the heir apparent to replacing Howard. There were people talking about that. And I think the powers that be looked at me and said, wait a minute, Dee Snyder sold 10 million records, uh, and he's um, you know doing well. Well, David Lee Roth, he sold 50 million records. He'll be five times as good as Dee. It doesn't work like that. And any of you out there who ever heard the legendary Roth first broadcasts, they were mind-numbing, mind-numbingly bad. And David was short-lived on radio. And they paid him seven-figure salary, which he took with him. God bless him. Those morons thought, again, oh, because he he's, he he's, he's, seems like he talks pretty good on stage. He'll be good on radio. Apples and oranges, baby. Two different things. Yeah, I talk really good on stage. I talk good on the mic here. Still two different jobs. Two different jobs. And just because you can quip on stage and come up with one-liners on stage, if I was doing any better, I'd be twins, Baba Shadu, Baba Bam. Yeah, that's not radio. You can't do that for four hours, as David found out, and as the people from Clear Channel found out when they tried to replace Howard Stern with David Lee Roth. This all brings me to this point, and that is this. If I'm going to continue doing this show, I need an audience. It's not the money. It's the audience. I need to know that what I'm doing and what I'm saying is reaching people and that people are interested. Whether they agree or disagree, I'm cool with that. They call that back in the day... Back in the day, being the D, they call those phone burners. Something you would say on the air that would light up the phones, and you would know you were connecting with the audience. You'd be sitting in that room, but you'd say certain something, and the phones would just go bam, just light up and start flashing, and you know you'd hit a hot button. They might agree with you, they might disagree with you, but they were conversation was being had. People were being engaged. I need that. And I could see that there is a relative, uh, look, for the average person, they may say it's a big audience, 
But for podcasts, compared to my peers, it is a small audience of D-Snyder Radio. D-Snyder Radio, that's my old radio show. Of Snyder Comments listeners. And you're enthusiastic. I see your tweets, your comments, and I appreciate it. I'm glad that I'm connecting with you. I'm glad that what I'm saying is reacting with you. I'm telling you that I'm going to keep coming in here. I'm going to keep dragging that portable studio around the world with me. And I'm going to keep setting aside the time, which is not easy. This show is late again. I got to know that this interest, whether it's interest because you disagree or interest because you agree or interest for whatever reason, I need to know people are listening. I've been spoiled. Just like I was spoiled with seeing and knowing that people were hearing my music and I couldn't just do music for myself, I can no longer sit in the room, sit in the cone of silence, which, by the way, I'm not in. I'm actually finally back home in my studio sitting like a normal person at a normal radio console doing this show. It probably sounds a lot better, too. Um, I need to know that there's an audience and that people are engaged and people are interested and people want to hear what I have to say if I'm going to keep doing it. So your job, if you decide to accept it, is to damn spread the word. Let people know I'm doing this show. It is on you. All right? I'm not asking for your money. I'm asking for you to spread the word about Snyder Comments. Facebook it, tweet it, fucking whatever they do, spray paint it on the sides of buildings. Spread. This show has got to be a bigger show if I'm going to commit to keep doing this. I got to know people want it. And that, how do I know? By downloads. People are downloading. People want it. I'm keeping doing it. Okay? And just like recording new albums and the hardcore dedicated fans who are out there, and they're small but mighty, they're, they're deep. We, we're there for you. We will buy your records. We want to hear your music. We love Twisted Sister and Dee Snyder. We want to hear what you have to say. God, I love you, and I appreciate you, and I mean that most sincerely. You people, it's not enough. It's, I've been spoiled. I've had millions. I've had media attention, and I can't just create. When it comes to recording music and doing radio, two things that I've had major success at. The other things, I'm continuing to write screenplays in the dark alone, and I sit there and stack them up on my desk. I got quite a few. I got a a couple new plans as well. And, uh, you know, know, I got to write this thing. I wrote this movie called Killing Christmas. It's on my desk. The Amazing Poudini, it's on my desk. There's more. I can't think of the names of them. But I just write them for myself because I've got to. And nobody's buying what I'm selling, but I, I enjoy the process. And I have not been yet spoiled. I think if and when I get to the point where my, all my scripts are being made into movies, then I will have a tough time just writing a script to see it sit there gathering dust like I'm looking at this big stack over here of all kinds of things gathering dust. Not enough. Right now, that is enough for me creatively. Just to, and I, I tell you guys, just go and do it. 
the satisfaction is in doing it, you will get spoiled later after you have success at it. But right now, please spread the word on this show. Get the word out. If you like what's going on, if you think it has value, share it with everybody you know. Let them know. Expand my listenership because that's what I need. Again, it's not about the money. It's about knowing that I'm not just broadcasting to fish. Meanwhile, on another subject, uh, my um, Twisted Sister costume got burned up in a fire. Oh, yeah. I didn't mention that. Yeah. Uh, This is kind of interesting. So, all right. Let's be clear. There's the original Stay Hungry Twisted Sister costume. That did not get burned up in the fire. It is safely in a storage facility, well packed up by the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, as a matter of fact. Um, they uh, they um, displayed it a number of years ago. They did a display on the history of heavy metal, and they asked if they could display my costume. So um, I dug it out and sent it to them. The digging out process was kind of funny. This was back in the 90s. I'm guessing 90s? Yeah. And uh, late 90s. And I, went, I got the request for the costume, and I had, you know, and... You might think, uh, I mean, this stuff is it's important to me, but you might think it, it was, you know, I don't know what you imagine, uh, you know, the, all the costumes and things like that from the day, what that's like, but it's not very glorious. It's a big box. And in the big box, um, I would throw in the costumes that I no longer wore. I remember I started with Twisted Sister in 1976 buying women's clothing. And then slowly, Suzette took over, started making costumes, and they went from very feminine outfits to the Raggedy Ann on acid that so many of you come to know over the years. Um, but as the costumes, you know, a new set of costumes would come in, costumes would get worn out or whatever, I'd just throw them in the box. Often, I wouldn't wash them. So they'd be like, you know, just stinky. And I just throw them in there because no big deal. This is, you know, this is in the 70s, whatever. You're throwing stuff in there. And so I w- went down into the basement, pulled out the big box. And my kids, now this is back in the 90s, so they're ranging in age from like, oh, I'm saying, I guess um, Jesse was born in 82. So this is like 98. Do the math. Cody was born in 89. So you can kind of see the ages in there. And they're all standing around watching with eyes wide, as I pull, go through the costume, and it's like sediment, layers of costumes. And I'm peeling them back, and they recognize, because they've seen videos and stuff, the more recent stuff from the videos, you know, to come out and play, and we're not going to take it. I mean, I want to stay hungry, and even you can't stop rock and roll. But as I'm digging through the box for their enjoyment, I start getting down to the, shall we call it, sweet transvestite era, of stockings and garters and kimonos and and uh, very gay, for lack of a better word, outfits. And as I'm pulling through, I can see their faces changing. And my then eight-year-old son, Cody, says, Dad, is it true you used to be a transsexual? 
To which I responded with a great deal of pride, no, son, your father was a transvestite. If, if I was a transsexual, you wouldn't be here. Um, far be it for me to ask where an eight-year-old learned the word transsexual. But um, so that costume when returned by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, was treated with a lot more respect than the way I was treating it. You know, uh, I put it in a plastic bag and stuffed it into a FedEx, you know, overnight pack and sent it to them. Uh, they sent it back, each piece layered and packaged and insured and transported by professionals who protect uh, important things, documents, antiques, you know, valued possessions. When I got it back, I realized the significance of what the, this outfit has, the Stay Hungry cover outfit and the, the videos and from the tour, that people know it so well. It's iconic. And I've been treating it pretty badly. So it remains in those nice boxes. When Twisted Sister reformed and we got, uh, we decided to go out in the, in the you know, classic look, Suzette made new costumes. And she made me a new Stay Hungry era outfit with the shoulder pads, the one boot, one high boot, the one low boot, that whole look. <laughs> that is the outfit I wore with Twisted Sister through our reunion, first reunion years. Excuse me. Uh, I wore it in the various television commercials like the Radio Shack one you may have seen. Uh, the 80s call, they want their store back. And when Twisted Sister stopped wearing costumes and that's like seven eight years ago now i i stored it away i put it away and i actually pulled it out only to do those commercials that radio shack commercial and that radio shack commercial oddly enough was done in a part of california in la which was right near where my son lives my oldest son jesse so i was going to a dinner or something like that i said hey jess do me a favor, will you take my costume, my stage costume, with you? I'll pick it up from you another time. Because we don't live in L.A., but I figured I'd get it from him sooner or later. Well, years have gone by, and Jesse had that costume. And obviously, he just put it in storage in the garage, uh, up in the, the attic space. Because out of the way, you know, I didn't need it immediately. I knew where it was. Uh, he knew where it was. And when I needed it, I would get it. Well, now with Twist Sisters' final 40 and fuck it uh, tour. God, I used the word tour. It's not a tour. We got like six shows booked. Eight shows. I had this idea that maybe, just maybe, for the very last show, wherever that wound up being in 2016, I would strap on the spandex one more time, put on the war paint, and go on stage for the very last show in full, old-school, twisted sister regalia. That idea went up in smoke when my son's garage containing my stage costume caught fire and burned. So, I will not be donning the outfit. <laughs> And as far as the original outfit, the, the I actually don't fit in that one. I'm bigger, not fatter. You guys have seen pictures of me. But I'm broader 
and more muscular than I was back in the 80s. So the shoulder pads and stuff don't fit me anymore. Interestingly enough, key part of the outfit. Um, so anyway, so yeah. So my costume burned up. Um, could Suzette make me another one? Yeah, technically she could. You know, the boots are custom made. It's a bit of a pain in the ass to do for one show. I don't see putting that all together for just one farewell show, strapping on the spandex one more time, as we like to say in the band. So, uh, so I just wanted to share that that with you. Bummer. Sort of like I, you know, I feel like I got the answer from you know someplace out there in the ozone. Should I put on my costume one more time? No. That's that. So the the shoulder pads are a pile of melted plastic in the uh, in the garage, the burnt up garage. Um. All right. You know. There was. You know. This. There was things I wanted to talk about before. The this now I want to talk about it last week, uh, in the new year, and. Then Lemmy passed away, and you know that took precedent. Matter of fact, um, Lemmy's funeral is this week, and um, I'm going to pay my respects. Funerals are weird, right? I mean, the person doesn't know you're there. Well, some will say he might be those who believe that he can see, but are you doing it for them in the afterlife, looking down and saying, "Oh, look who showed up! Look who didn't make it! Son of a bitch! I'll get even with him later." No, it's you know. They say you do it for yourself. You do it out of respect for others. Uh, in Lemmy's case, there's no real family. He wasn't married. He had a son, who I'm sure will be there. Um, but I didn't know his son. Um, I don't know. It's just, you know, I'm, 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 I will be attending because I have to. I just feel I have to. And uh, I want to. So that's going to be this weekend. Pay my respects. I was driving down the street today, and I saw the side of a building. Someone had painted a portrait of Lemmy on a music store on the side. I thought that was cool, the respect that that guy's got. But I don't want to go back down that Lemmy road. The, I had a, an observation, a realization the, uh, a couple weeks ago about change. And it was about how slow true change is. We feel very, we, the average people, you know, us struggling to figure it out in the middle here, feel frustration because change, true change, you know, Obama, change we can believe in. Um, and I'm not anti-Obama. I'm just saying that was a, that's a great statement to make. But it takes forever. It takes generations to change. It does not happen in a year or five years. It doesn't happen in a decade. It takes generations to change people's way of thinking. Case in point. Did I ever tell you about the time I was invited to uh, Mexico to fight crime? Well, I was. In Mexico, 
they have a problem with people and their view of, of stealing and dishonesty. They asked, this is a number of years ago, they did a poll and they asked the Mexican people, if your friend leaves his iPhone on a table behind, is it okay for you to take it? 90% of the people said yes. 90%. Let me clarify. Your friend, not a person, someone you know, leaves their personal item on behind. 90% of the people, young and old, said it was okay to take it. It wasn't stealing. These, the Mexican people, for the most part, are church-going religious people. Yet they didn't view it as theft. And the government was very aware that this perception of dishonesty permeates the way the world looks at Mexico. And we know that. We know that. The Mexicans know that. That they are viewed as dishonest and untrustworthy. And the truth is, they are. Because within their own society, they don't see their actions as being wrong. And that's the big problem with people. They don't view, most people don't see themselves as the bad guy. Everybody's the hero in their own story, let me tell you. That's a fact. Think about that. Everybody's the hero in their own story. They, they, in, only, in the, only in superhero comics is the guy, oh, nah, uh, uh, I'm Lex Luthor. I am evil. I'm Dr. Doom. I'm Darth Vader. I am that. No. Hitler thought he was a good dude. Hitler thought he was doing the right thing. All of our enemies, all of the bad guys, don't think they're the bad guys. Excuse me. They think they're the good guys. This is the problem. So the Mexican government realized that in order to get change going, they had to start with the the, the very young and raise, because the culture of dishonesty, they're being raised to think that it was cool to steal and be dishonest by their parents who felt that way. So you had to change the children's thinking and then they would grow up hopefully thinking differently and then raise their children differently and slowly change would happen. And they likened it to wearing seatbelts. Let me tell you, when that, I mean, we do it pretty much by rote now. We accept it. I'm old! When seatbelts came out, I mean, I come from a time there were no seatbelts. My parents, we had a, um, a 55 or 54. Like, this is when you're old. This is the stuff you sit there arguing about. It was a 54, 55. Who gives a shit? We had a sedan. And we had four kids. They were, you know, we were young. The kids were young. So my father, in his infinite wisdom, because this was child rearing in the 50s and 60s, he got a piece of plywood and he cut it to fill the wheel well, the, 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 the foot well, 
in the back seat. You know, when you sit in a back rear seat, you got a place where you put your feet. It goes down the edge, right? Well, he he built this little thing to make it a flat area. So the cushion of the back seat went into the board. Then he got some throw pillows, you know, some cushions from old couch, and then laid them in there. The four children were just thrown into the back, and we just rolled around. And we loved it. We rolled around banging our heads and whatever. Hang on, kids. You know, and no problem. <laughs> That's before seatbelts became like a thing. You know, before you had to have seatbelts. That, when that first came out, people were so resistant and they were so minimal. Now, how many years? Okay, that's the 60s. Now, you, in the 2000s, they're just, you know, they just are. Seatbelts. could put on your seatbelt. People do it. How many years was that? 40 years. 40 years. Till the kids grew up to accept this as the world. And now our kids, I still remember seatbelts being an option. My kids don't recall seatbelts. They, they were born into car seats. You see kids now, I mean, what they, they, you know, the rules about boosters and car seats and, you know, and the law enforcement on that. So it took 40 years to get there. All right. They compared it to only you could prevent forest fires. Smokey the bear. You know, we still have forest fires, but they were epidemic. 40, 50 years ago, that campaign where people are actually thinking about, hey, that cigarette I'm throwing out the window could start a forest fire, it still happens. But it's not as rampant as it once was. Dog shit. People picking up their dog shit. I lived in Manhattan in the 70s. I had two dogs. I remember mid-70s when they instituted the pooper scooper law. Because before that time, there was just piles of shit everywhere. Stepping in dog shit was a daily occurrence. That's the 70s. 70s to 80s to 90 to 2000, 40 years. Now do you see dog shit? If you see dog shit on the street, you're aware of it. What piece of, what animal left a piece of dog shit on the street? Like it's a thing. We accept it. It takes decades to institute things like that. So, the Mexican government decide that they've got to start at the very beginning. They've got to get the children to think differently about this honesty. So, they decide that they are going to start an advertising campaign, a cool advertising campaign. And they get a, a band, a popular Mexican band, whose name escapes me. And I'm sorry, boys, because I really liked you guys. But it was something Mexican. And they were actually like a, they were kind of um, a, 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 a steel panther, a Mexican steel panther. They dressed up in 80s. They did original songs. But they had hit records down there. They were popular. And they had them re-record, we're not going to take it, in Mexican, in, in Spanish. No los aceptaremos. No los aceptaremos. No los aceptaremos. No los aceptaremos. Nunca más. And they asked me to come down to fight crime. 
They invite me to Mexico, me, my wife, and my daughter. And we are treated as honored guests of state. Give the best treatment everywhere, um, you know, first class everything. Uh, remember, they took us on a, um, a open bus tour of Mexico City. Terrifying, um, uh, you know. But great pride, and I went and traveled with the band to uh, to launch the No Los Excepto Ramos anti dishonesty campaign in Mexico. I don't know how it's going down there. I do know at the end of our trip. My daughter's iPod was stolen out of our hotel room, out of her hotel and a five-star hotel. So, so much for fighting crime. But the point being, what I've noticed, and this, this realization, is just how long true change takes to come. And it does come, though. Remember I said I was old? Let me say it again. I'm old! I was there, God help me, for the first Earth Day. I believe that was 1970. First Earth Day. Now we're in, we'll do the math, that's like 45 years. They have it every year. Where a bunch, and we were in junior high school, and it was a hippie thing. Uh, go and do something to improve the environment. The recognition that, our, that we were destroying our environment 45 years ago. I remember cleaning up an a empty lot with a bunch of my friends, and we were so proud. The first Earth Day. Did another first walk, walkathon? What's the walkathon? That's something else. I was there for the first of those, too. God, I'm old. Anyway, now going green is not the geeked-out weird thing it used to be. Now average Joes and Janes and... You know, and, and not just your, like I said, or your nerds and your hippies are, are ecologically minded. Now it's generally being accepted. We completely fucked the pooch. We screwed the pooch. Fuck the pooch. Sorry. We screwed the pooch <laughs> with fuck the pooch too. Fuck that. Fuck the duck. We fucked the duck and we screwed the pooch environmentally. And now everybody is sort of accepting and acknowledging right, left, center, you know, young, old, everybody, and, and electric vehicles and, and alternative energy. And, you know, people are making changes and wanting to make changes. <laughs> well, that took 40 years. Seatbelt, 40 years. Only you can prevent forest fires, 40, 50 years. Getting real change to the people takes decades and generations. But this is not a message of hopelessness. It's a message of hopefulness. It's an old guy sitting there looking and going, you know what? Shit does change. Shit does happen. People do change their way of thinking. But damn, it, takes, it does take a long time. And it is infuriating and frustrating to those of us who see what needs to be changed. Yet, we, the people, seem unable to institute any real change. And as the decades continue on, people won't even be able to remember a time where we weren't ecologically minded. 
They won't remember a time where you didn't wear seatbelts. They won't remember a time we didn't have airbags and cars that stopped themselves and the technology. And, when, you know, and a lot of these changes were fighting the corporate world that doesn't want to see the changes happen. So that's part of the reason this dragging of feet that comes from corporate America, because change costs money and change costs them money. But it does come. So, you know, rest your sphincters, rest your sphincters and just, you know, and and know that one day in Mexico, you'll be able to put down your phone and not worry that your friend is going to steal it, thinking they're perfectly within their right. That even they will one day realize just how fucked up that is. All right? No los excepto Ramos. Nuka mas. Nuka, nuka mas. Nuka mas anymore. All right. I think that's all I got to say this week. Um, I will say that I've been on a sort of a whirlwind the last three months with the show in Toronto. I've just got home, so to speak. I left in the middle of October. And uh, it was just yesterday that I emptied my suitcases. Um, and uh, it remind, you know, it's you know, back in being a D, back in the day, uh, that was you know, I never emptied my suitcase, and going out for three months was was normal fare. And I don't mind it; I'm not complaining. But it just sort of is a mindset; it is a way of thinking, and you don't feel a sense of 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 contentment of coming home until you empty that suitcase, you put it away and you lay your head down on your pillow on your bed and you take a breath and you go, damn, that was kind of cool. <laughs> or, or damn, it's good to be back home. So uh, I am back home. Now, while I'm back home, I'm hoping to get some interviews, uh, you know, t- taught some people. Mix it up a little bit on Snyder comments, and uh, I'm hoping uh, you know. Uh, I'm hoping to yeah. That's what I'm looking forward to, to adding the interview element back to this show, and uh, getting some other people's ideas and discussions. Uh, subjects I don't know, but I'll look for that in the weeks to come. I know I'm hoping to speak with Dave Mustaine. Trying to set that up. That's not easy. Uh, I've also. I'm reading a book for the second time called Area 51, which is the, uh, the which is the, the the secret government documents that have been finally after 50 years released on Area 51. It's an amazing book. I've read it once. It tells you what's going on back there. It's not what you think, but it's mind numbing, even more mind numbing because it's not what you think. You think, and this is what the government wants. They want you to think it's a bunch of UFOs and aliens being hidden back there, and it's not. That's, they encourage people thinking that way because they don't want them to know just how bad, what they're doing, the activities going on back there. And this book, Area 51, is amazing. And I found out that the author is um, lives in, in out here on the West Coast, so I'm hoping to talk to her. So I got some plans for 2016 if i haven't said it before happy new year everybody let's hope that a great happy healthy successful positive new year for us all see you next time
Stay tuned for the latest AP News headlines from Podcast One right after this. When shopping for car insurance, consider this. GEICO has been saving people money on car insurance for over 75 years. So if you're serious about savings, it's simple. Go to GEICO.com. After 75 years, they know how to save you money. AP Update. I'm Sandy Kozell. Polls are opening across New Hampshire for the nation's first presidential primary. And that means it's time for Granite State undecided voters to make a choice, as we hear from the AP's Jerry Bodlander. Voters here in New Hampshire are known for waiting until the last minute before deciding who they're pulling the lever for or changing their minds about who they're supporting. Gloria Fields is choosing between Donald Trump and Jeb Bush. Trump because of his business ability. Bush because of what he has done in Florida. Field says she may not decide who she's supporting until she's in the voting booth. All this uncertainty makes polling more difficult, and on top of that, independent voters can vote in either the Republican or Democratic primary. Jerry Bodlander, Manchester, New Hampshire. Polls show Clinton trailing Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. She started her day at 7 a.m. at a Manchester polling location. AP Update, I'm Sandy Kozell.